0: You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Alison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging, To bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 41 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm
0: extremely well, thank you, Valerie. I'm very happy to be here today. It's a bright, shiny Monday. My puppy dog has pulled all the stuffing out of the pillow out the back, and it looks like it's snowed. Nice. So it's much better to be in here, thinking happy thoughts about writing
1: (laughs) than looking at your new your new snow covered.
0: I know. I just can't even begin to think about what I'm going to do to fix that. But anyway, that's a whole other problem, and that would be for a totally different podcast. (laughs) But we're here to talk about writing. So, what are you up to, Valerie?
1: What am I up to? I had a road trip on the weekend. I went oh. to, uh, you know, hang out with some writerly friends in Canberra, of Lovely. all places. Uh, and it's been a busy weekend because this week we're launching one of our new courses, The Business of Freelancing, which is all about the business of freelancing. So it's not <laughs> a actually, good name, Well, though. you know. It really it's,
0: captured the essence there.
1: Exactly. It's succinct. So um, it's not about writing or pitching or polishing. It's very much about the nuts and bolts about... Invoicing, you know, getting repeat business, getting your administration in order, making sure you have a lucrative freelance writing business. So, yes, that's with the Australian Writers Centre.
0: I really wish that I had done that course about 15 years ago before I started so I didn't have to make the whole thing up as I went along. Oh, me that would have been too.
1: good yeah and then bumbling along and learning Mm -hmm. along the way but you know at least we've refined it by now Mm. but anyway I wanted to say a big congratulations to everyone who has completed NaNoWriMo. Yes, Yes fantastic yay you. Well done everyone for those of you who have you know done National Novel Writing Month in November big congratulations whether or not you hit your target and a particularly big congratulations to Guy Sigley who said who tweeted us and he said that he made it to sixty thousand words Fantastic. for NaNoWriMo with a complete first draft and that it started with a writer center email. So good on you, Guy. We can't wait to read the final product because we no. know you're gonna get there.
0: Absolutely. Well, my first map makers was written in NaNoWriMo two years ago. So it's definitely a thing that could lead you to publication. That's all I'm saying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Same with Lisa Yeah, One of her books was written in NaNoWriMo. That's yep. fantastic. I should do NaNoWriMo.
0: You should do NaNoWriMo. Everyone should have a crack at it, I reckon. That's
1: next year. Okay, I'll have a year right. to go. Make a um, note. I will make a note. So let's see what's been going on in the world of blogging and writing and publishing this week. Um, I I came across a link on ProBlogger, which is, you know, one of our favourite sites, and it was – It was called, Is Blogging Dead? How Blogs Are Changing and How You Can Stay on Top. Now, I know that that's sort of one of those headlines that you kind of see all the time, but this is a good article, well, a good blog post. It's written by an author and freelance writer, Steph Green, and she basically goes on to write quite a number of points and observations on what's happening in the Australian blog, well, the blogosphere generally, not just in Australia. And there's a few salient points. And one is she says that people are less interested in following blogs in the sense that remember how I used to always go to my Google reader or whatever my RSS reader was and, you know, flick through the various blogs that I was following. And admittedly, I don't actually do that anymore. Do you do that?
0: No, I have to say that I was—I I, I still lament the loss of Google Reader to a degree <laughs> because it was a good way to keep track of all the blogs that I was interested in following. I didn't necessarily look at them every single day, but if, if they were in the reader, there was a chance I would at least see yeah. some of what they were doing. Yeah, I, I'm still a bit sad about that.
1: How do you actually go about reading the blogs that you want to read then if not through a reader?
0: To be honest with you, I, I do have a couple of readers. We've talked about Zite mm. before. We've also talked about I also use Feedly um, but not as regularly as I probably should. I do pretty much rely on my Twitter stream or right. Facebook page. I see things that I'm interested in, you know, because I tend to follow people on Twitter or Facebook if I like what they're talking about. Yeah. And so then it's a matter of, ah, oh, look, okay, there's a tweet. i follow that link. So I am, it's very much I'm following yeah, I'm using that as a way of, of finding posts that interest yeah, me. Yeah, I,
1: I must admit, I do that too. But, of course, you know in Twitter and Facebook, if you miss that part yeah. of your stream, you've missed it. Yeah. Uh, so I use Zite as well. But the, I guess Zite is slightly different in that it's a curation tool. So somebody yeah. else is making, or, or a computer really, an algorithm is making the decision for you based on your interests but also what you end up clicking on, what you vote as good, what you vote as not good. So – in, in, those curation tools, I think, are becoming more and more valuable, but also you could be missing out. I could be missing out on reading some pretty interesting stuff, when, like when I used to use my reader. But the other thing that uh, Steph says is that guest blogging isn't as valuable as it once was. Now, she has said that um, she's found that her recent guest blogging isn't yielding the results she's come to expect, whereas a blog written for an A-grade blog in 2012 might generate 300 hits to my site. These days, it might only ge- generate 30 mm. because people are paying less attention to the bio links, you know, which is usually where people find you. So do you, what do you think about that? Well,
0: it's interesting that she says that and I I have to I have to say that I've actually never found guest blogging to be particularly useful from a traffic generating perspective, never. Mm. Um what I have found it useful from is a connection perspective. I in the sense that I've I guess um, made connections with other bloggers that have proved to be good conversations further down the track that, yeah, to me it's never, but, you know, my my blog has never really been about generating pure traffic Mm. either. So I think it depends on what you want from your blog, like what you're after. I think it's, you know, it's about making a decision as to whether or not 30 hits that day is going to be useful to you or 300 hits that day is going to be useful to you if nobody ever comes back. Yes. Or, or what, what it is that you actually... What, I, I think before you start putting yourself out there and guest blogging, you need to know why you're doing it. I guess that's that would be my advice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it takes so much effort to guest blog. Yeah. You know, you're already... You know, generating stuff for your own blog, and then you have to create a brand new exclusive post for a guest blog. And the thing is that um, somebody contacted me the other day from a blog that I do respect and love very much and asked me whether I would do a guest blog post. And I really like this blog, I really like the bloggers behind it, and I'd love to be able to do it, but there's only so much bandwidth that I have so what I said in response that's you know I'd love to but uh instead I I don't have the time at the moment to craft a really good guest post but what I can do if you're interested is you can Q&A with me and then that might and you might be able to craft that but it's sort of less effort for you and less effort for me in a sense but you still get some good content
0: yeah that's right
1: the other thing that Steph has said is that people interact on social media and not your sites. So she's even suggesting that it might be useful to delete the comment function of your blog altogether. Or hide the number of comments in a post so readers aren't seeing a big zero. Mm. Uh, and, and instead, focus on building the engagement with your favorite social media platforms. Because often, I will post a link to a blog post that I've written and there's hardly any or very few comments on the actual blog post. But there's a whole stream of comments on the Facebook Uh, where I've posted it on Facebook. So that's an interesting point about, uh, you know, I've started to see some people turn off their comments to zero. um, And also some of the very big bloggers in the world, like even Tim Ferriss, he used to get, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments and these days he you know he doesn't get very many comments at all on the actual blog but he might get it on you know other other platforms so what are your thoughts at that would you turn off your comments
0: um no because um again like i i I don't i've never really been that wed to numbers so uh, it's not that important to me i talk to people across all the different platforms but i would say and i think this is something that people should always bear in mind is that that old sort of advice about not building your property on rented sites Mm. is is really important um Facebook's algorithm is changing again. Yeah. So if you're putting a lot of time into building your following on Facebook and getting your engagement happening and stuff there, mm-hmm. overnight it changes. Yeah. So you go from you know reaching 2,000, 3,000 people to suddenly reaching 121 and there's nothing that you can do about that except pay. And that's, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's the way it's going over on Facebook. Um, whereas on your own blog, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You can say, you know, like it's it's, I just... I really um, feel the importance of making sure that you can control as much of what's happening with your profile as you can and the reach of it. And I do think that people talking about the importance of your um, email list uh, are are spot on because that is something that you can own and that is a way of, you know, if you email someone, it goes into their inbox. If you put it on Facebook, chances of them actually seeing it are really small. So I think it's... Um, I think there's got to be a balance of, of all of those things. You know, you you, you have to, you have. I, I don't think I would turn off Facebook at this point. I do feel you know, still need to be there to reach people. Um, and Twitter, Twitter is so ephemeral. Like I just find these days it's very difficult to get a conversation going. Everybody's tweeting at me. Nobody's really tweeting to me. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, try to keep your own real estate happening as much as you can. That would just be my thought on it.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I tell you, Facebook drives me batty sometimes. Mm. Mm, yeah, mm. I, I, I like going into it and see what my friends are doing and that sort of thing. But I have to say that uh, it's driving me slightly insane because you don't know who, who your friends have actually seen your post because of the, they they decide who who's worthy of it kind of thing. Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh,
1: now moving on to an interesting post that I came across on a blog called Two Writing Teachers. It's a blog post called "Note-taking: a writing genre worthy of a curriculum of its own. And I have to say that uh, that's something I have noticed in the last few years as well. There are so many uh, blog posts and theories and philosophies and approaches and methods on the actual art of note-taking. Mm. Because you know, we, we are so obsessed well, I am so obsessed, and I'm sure <laughs> some of us are so Some obsessed. other people are also yeah. so obsessed with actual notebooks. You know, actual yes. beautiful uh, moleskins or sta- yeah, <laughs> stationery. And um, people have very different ways of taking notes. Some of some people are very visual. They draw mind maps. They scribble all over the place. Some people do it in a very, very dot-pointed form. I watched um, someone I know take his notes and he says himself he's an OCD note-taker. So mm-hmm. anything he does, he's always taking notes. And it's meticulous and it's all in dot-point Everything's yeah. a dot point, whereas other people are way more fluid and they will write entire sentences. So whereas other people will draw Venn diagrams and, and other people will do it in a, in a much more gridded fashion. So it's true. Everyone has a very different way of taking notes, and <clears throat> I'm going somewhere with this, Alison. But... I'm,
0: I'm, I'm just li- – I'm taking notes <laughs> while I'm listening to see where it is that you're at But before
1: going. I go somewhere, where, how do you take notes? Do you have a particular I take way? notes
0: really badly, I have to say. Okay. Um, so, I, well, I'm a dot pointer for starters, or an, actually I do like a number. I'm a numbers girl. Oh, yes. One, two, three, four, five. Um, so I – as we've all discussed in the past, my handwriting is so bad I can't actually – Read it. So anything I take in note form in handwriting, I never read again. Mm. Um, I use Evernote on my uh, iPad mostly for taking notes. Um, yes. But I'm not a person who sits there around just taking notes for the sake of it. I don't do that. I'm. I would rather um, listen carefully, yes, and then I go away. And if there's something that I need to. Because you can always find the information again these days. That's the thing. Like it, it's a rare thing to go somewhere and hear something that you're yes. never going to hear again. So um, I will go away and do that. But I, yeah, I, I'm um, I'm, not a crazy, it's just like I'm not a crazy fo- fo- um, photograph taker either. You know, I go to things mm. with my kids and there'll be people there taking a thousand photographs. Mm. I prefer to sit there and actually focus on what's happening mm. and then, Think about it afterwards or, so you know, whatever.
1: I have a further question to that. If mm. you are reading a book and maybe you're reading, not for fun, but say for research or because you want to mm-hmm. learn something. Mm-hmm. Now, a book is very big. It's not like a magazine article that you can skim and see the point that you were trying to find. Do you take notes in that situation, like No, I,
0: I use post-it notes. I'm oh. the queen of post-it notes. Oh. So, I simply mark the page. And I will mark it with an, and this is the way that I edit my novels and everything, I will mark the page, I will put an arrow to the section that I, you know, particularly was interested in and I use it at that as a reference point.
1: Ah, okay, interesting. So
0: I'm a a real user of a post-it note.
1: Yes, well, I... A user,
0: one might even say.
1: Okay, I think that's interesting because I'm one of these people who if I'm reading a printed book, it has to be pristine. I will not write in the margins. I'm not going to write notes in it. I'm not going to underline stuff or anything like that.
0: I know. The book has to be pristine.
1: Yeah, not everyone thinks that way, though. And uh, I I don't even use post-it notes, I must admit. Uh, But when I'm reading on Kindle... I'm a crazy highlighter and note taker on Kindle because I love the fact that I can highlight passages that I think are either beautiful or resonate with me or I want to remember or they're good for research. And uh, it, I, I can then extract all of those notes and highlights um, out of the Kindle and, and print them out, which is great. And in fact, some people uh, don't know how to do that. So I'll make sure that we'll I'll put a a link in the show notes. I wrote a blog post on how you can extract all of your highlights and notes from Kindle yeah. so that you can just print them out on your desktop computer. Uh, but this brings us to another uh post that I came across this week on the Zapier blog. Um, and this is how to better remember and make use of what you read. Because sometimes you read stuff, you go, oh, where did I read that? Mm. Particularly if you don't have a post-it note or, or didn't highlight it on Kindle. And it's got various people like Maria Popova, who has a great site called Brain Pickings, and also Ryan Holiday, who has written a, several best-selling books. But Ryan, have a listen to What Ryan does so when he um, uh, takes notes from books because he's an avid uh, book reader he he reads heaps and heaps of books and he's also helped a lot of best-selling authors in marketing their books but basically it says here while Ryan is reading he diligently takes notes directly in the margins of the physical text and highlights quotes or passages that he wants to capture later on these particular pages he folds up the bottom corner a few weeks after he finishes the book, he revisits the page and transfers the notes onto index cards, mm-hmm. and each note card contains a single quote or idea. The ideas are then organised by category, not by book. This way, when he's writing, he can pull up all of the information in, on a certain category to reference within an article or book chapter. That's that's exhausting. <laughs> I mean, that's that's extreme note taking. Yeah, exactly.
0: yeah, that's really impressive.
1: I know he's a pretty impressive young man, but um, uh, yeah, that's I would never have thought to do that.
0: And <laughs> I, I don't have enough time in my life to do that, Val. I just, <laughs> I feel that, yeah, like it's, he's, he's a very organised individual, and I take my hat off.
1: He certainly is. Um, so let's see what else is happening in the world of um blogging and uh, uh publishing and writing. Let's. See. We have another link.
0: You're telling me that computers are, w- are writing novels, Valerie. <laughs> That's the link that you have given me here. The computers are writing novels.
1: That's right.
0: Kind of makes me want to cry a little bit.
1: Because, so, you know, if you've just done NaNoWriMo, you really could have just got your computer to do it.
0: <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. Computers are writing novels and getting better at it.
1: Apparently. According to
0: Business Insider Australia.
1: really think this is going to take off, but uh, apparently the, one of the first computer-generated works of fiction was in 2008, and it was a novel called True Love, um, mm. and it was published by a Russian publishing company, and they said that uh, it was it's 320 pages, and they said it's a variation of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, but worded in the style of Murakami. So, yeah, I'm not really sure that... I haven't read it. I did you read missed... the extract?
0: <laughs> Kitty couldn't fall asleep for a long time. Her nerves were strained as two tight strings and even a glass of hot wine that Vronsky made her drink did not help her. Lying in bed, she kept going over and over that monstrous scene at the meadow. Oh, Well, dear. you know, I've read worse.
1: Yeah. I
0: have. It's true. I have.
1: We're going to have to give it a go and, yeah, see. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Well, that's, that's depressing. Moving right along, Valerie, give me something exciting to talk about.
1: Yeah, okay. We won't stay on computers. Let's not or writing stick novels there. I've got really something
0: exciting to talk about. Go on. So every year, Kidspot, which is one of our biggest parenting websites, runs a Voices competition, which is a big competition for bloggers. Yes. And this week, they revealed the winners of Voices 2014. Da, da, so if da. you're looking. If you're looking for some new blogs to have a look at to see, you know, what the best Australian bloggers in different categories are doing at the moment, it's worth having a look at these. Now, these are very much kind of parenting lifestyle sort of blogs. Um, and the overall winner this year was Claire from Checks and Spots mm. who has a very beautiful blog. It is. Um, it's gorgeous. I, it is absolutely beautiful, covering off home lifestyle. She has a green smoothie Ebook, which I'm sure Valerie is lining up for, because I know that you tried a green smoothie this year. How did you find it?
1: <laughs> yeah, interesting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you are not a kale convert, as I've yet. I've
1: tried, and like, it's just that they never end up green; they always end up brown for me, and it just doesn't oh look bell. appealing.
0: Oh, that's no good. You know, ones well, I make
1: myself—that is.
0: I think you should probably get Claire's ebook. Obviously, okay. she's called Twenty One Shades of Green. So oh surely, gosh. even you. Can't make a brown smoothie out of that. Um, but anyway, big shout out to everybody who, um, who has, you know, been a category winner or has a winner or even participated in that competition because I think it's a fantastic thing to see um, just so many great Australian blogs. Have yeah, well
1: done. Who says blogging is dead? Who says, <laughs> exactly.
0: It's all out there, all happening.
1: So who is our writer in residence this week?
0: Well, our writer in resident this week is the wonderful Rachel Johns, who is a best-selling, very popular, fabulous author of rural romance, which is something that I have always failed to say in the correct way. (laughs) Um, But Rachel um, has got some extremely interesting things to say about writing and about the book market, and I think that it's uh, definitely worth having a look and a listen Rachel Johns writes romantic fiction for Harlequin Australia. She's an English teacher by trade, a supermarket owner by day, a writer at night, and a mum to three boys 24-7. Rachel was voted in the top 10 of Booktopia's Australia's favourite novelists in 2014, and her new novel, Outback Ghost, is out now. Welcome, Rachel. How can you possibly fit us in with all that going on? Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So I'm happy to fit you in. <laughs> All right. So firstly, um, tell us a little bit about your work. Your, your, generally, your style of writing is generally put into the rural romance um, section of the bookshelf, which I struggle to say, but I do <laughs> enjoy reading. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, is it? Do, would you describe it as that, rural romance?
2: Yes, I think I would. My um, stories are more probably at the romance end than some of the rural uh, fiction authors out there and I think that's because I come from a, a romance writing background. I always wanted to uh, write for Mills and Boone actually and tried that for a long time. Um, and I, when I decided to write a rural book, um, it was because I was living in a small town um, and rural romance seemed to be... Uh, you know, doing really well in Australia and I had friends saying, you should write one because, you you know, you live it. Um, but I'm not a farmer's wife. I'm not a farmer. And so I did feel a bit of a fraud to start with um, so, but I, I now – I don't because I think rural is not is about a lot more than just being on the farm. It's about the community yeah. and um, small towns and how they interact and and you know um, look out for each other in uh, good times and bad. And so I now consider myself I am a definitely a rural romance writer because my setting is usually um, a rural community, but uh, I'm more focused on you know. The community and what happens um, between the people necessarily than, say big rural issues um, such as drought and you know right. whatever's going away to something farming.
0: <laughs> okay, so what draws you to romance writing? I mean, you said that you
2: always wanted to do that. What 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 took you into romance fiction in the first place? Um, well, the reason actually, I wasn't. I wouldn't say I always wanted to be a romance writer. I only started writing um, and deciding that I wanted to be a writer about seventeen when I broke up with my first boyfriend. And <laughs> Heartbreak I, drove uh, into so, you to romance fiction. Know, it, it did actually. Yeah, you know, at seventeen you're a drama queen and you think your life's over when you break up with who you think's the love of your life. And for some reason, I decided to write, and I wrote our story, and it was absolutely terrible. <laughs> um, and you know, I had to make up the ending because you know, breaking up was not very good. Ending. Right. So I gave him a horrific disease and killed him off in the story. Excellent. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, then no one else could have him. So it was a form of therapy for me. But that made me realise I really liked writing um, and I decided then to do a writing degree at uni. Um, that wasn't really that enlightening or helpful to me, but I met some great friends and um, realised that I still definitely... Of beers. Yeah, that <laughs> I did want to do this. Um and so I sort of wrote, I guess, what I'd call a weird combination of literary chick lit for, you know, the next five or so years because I was writing what, you know, uni lecturers wanted me to write that might right. win, you know, fabulous literary prizes or get great reviews from, uh, you know, important newspapers and the like. But really I just wanted to write Bridget Jones' Diary. Right. So um, then, you know, I kept going, trying to write this weird thing that wasn't really anything. And I think that's what I've learnt um, through targeting a specific genre is that you need to know, you know, if you want to be published, you need to know your readership and you need to write to a readership to an extent and I wasn't doing that. Um, I was just writing weird, airy-fairy stuff. And then what happened is a friend of mine from Uni and I, we saw an article about Mills and Boone writing. I never read a Mills and Boone book in my life. Um, but we saw that apparently you could make lots of money writing Mills and Boons <laughs> and that there was lots of writers in Australia doing this and we thought, well, why, why not us? Maybe this is the way to finally get published. So I went out and I read uh, about 50 Mills and Boon in a, in a month and I realised actually I, I did quite like this romance Um stuff and it wasn't all throbbing bosom, oh, sorry not throbbing bosom heaving bosoms. bosoms, get it right throbbing manhoods I know <laughs> it wasn't all that What like I'd imagined that it was and I don't know where I got that cliche from it was just sort of there um, it wasn't you know, some were good, some were bad, just like any book, but I really enjoyed it and I decided that that was definitely something I wanted to write. So then I found Romance Writers of Australia. I joined them I, and that's I think that was in 2006 and that was when I really decided that I was going to focus on romance and get, get serious. And so I did for a few years try Mills & Boone, got quite close. I came uh, runner-up in a worldwide competition for Mills & Boone but uh, worked with the editor for a couple of years but never quite got there. So it's not as easy as everyone thinks. No. Um, and then I've i tried it. Thinking, yeah, it's yeah. definitely not as easy it's as It's not as easy. You know, everyone thinks, oh, there's a formula, to sit down, write it, write, it, write it out, you know, in a couple of hours and then, you know, get published. It's definitely not like that. And I know a lot of Mills and Boone writers uh, now and I really admire them for being able to write that tight um, story in that specific sort of way. But, yeah, I decided to try my hand at something a bit longer
0: all right, so just um, just before so, yeah. you go on to that I, that, I do want to ask you about how your yep. first novel came to be published. But tell me, how many manuscripts did you write <laughs> before your first novel was published? I really should count that up. Um, just give me a ballpark. I'm thinking probably about 10. So, right, so um, you completed yeah. 10 entire stories, entire yep. books before you wrote the one that actually came to be published. I'd
2: bullish. say so. It was 15, about 15 to 17 years from when I decided I wanted to be a writer to when I finally got, you know, an offer from a publisher.
0: Wow. So that's persistence.
2: Yeah. In a lot of that time, you know, I had three kids. I did a uni degree. We moved towns. I, I wasn't, as I said, it was from 2006 really, so probably for about six years that I was really serious and really dedicated to doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, I think I submitted one story and got a rejection and then wondered why I wasn't getting published. But looking back, I wasn't actually submitting. So (laughs) that's a big thing. If you want to write, make sure you finish the book and
0: submit (laughs) it. So tell me about then how did you – so what was your first novel and how did it come to be published?
2: My first novel was actually called One Perfect Night. Um, it was published by uh, Corina Press, which is a digital imprint of Harlequin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was targeted at Mills and Boone. I wrote that book for Mills and Boone. I worked through an, uh, with an editor for, on that book for a, a long time. They told me, change this, change that. Um, and then even after I'd changed all these things and, you know, up the sensuality levels, which they wanted me to do, um, then I still got a rejection and it wasn't – it was – I realised that my rejections were changing. Um, Initially when I first started submitting things, the rejections were, you know, the conflict's not right, the characters aren't right. But I had – I seemed to be getting all this stuff right and all – the problem with that book was it just didn't suit the particular line that I was aiming at, Mills and Boone. It kind of fell between – it was not quite sexy enough for their really sexy line, not quite sweet enough for their sweet line. And so – That was my rejection basically, Um, just doesn't quite meet our sensuality requirements. So I realised maybe I had something, maybe I did have a story, maybe I could write um, but I just maybe wasn't suited for Mills and Boom.
0: and so I submitted to this new... It must have been a crushing blow after all those
2: years. It was big crushing because I'd actually been working with an editor for two years, um, getting to go straight to, you know, not go in the slush pole but straight to the editor's desk got um, so close so many times. I know that that book actually went to the senior editor um, and they, you know, considered it for acquisitions but just didn't quite hit the mark. And so, yeah, I was ready to give it up and throw in the towel when Carina Press um, launched and they said, you know, they'll. their motto I think was where no great story goes untold and because it was digital, you know, they could take risks and that maybe a traditional publisher wouldn't. And not that my book was anything way out there, it's just a quite a... Um, you know, normal contemporary romance, but um, it was it was too short for a, a mainstream publisher, and so it fit the digital market quite well. So that was the first book that I got published, and from there I actually um, got to go to a dinner with some editors because I was a now a Harlequin author, yep. and so I met the Harlequin Australia um, editors through a dinner, and that's the contact that I then got for my published print books in Australia.
0: Alright, so you've now written, I think it's 10 books, 10 published books all up, is that correct?
2: Yes, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, do you actually do anything, like I know that you're currently working on a manuscript, do you do anything differently now from when you sort of started out? Like, how do you approach your writing now as opposed to when you began?
2: I think the big difference from when I first began um, was that I know my market and I know sort of what I'm aiming for. You know where I'm, what readership I'm aiming for. I'm very, I don't, I don't plan very much, and I, I wish that I'd changed a bit more from when I started because I like the idea of you know having a bit more of an outline and knowing where I'm going. But I think my thinking is different. When I first set out, I just, as I said, I didn't know a lot about you know the characters needed to have goals and they need to be you know um, motivated by their backstories and just a whole load of things that I've picked up probably from being a member of Romance Writers Australia more than anything else.
0: So more Um, of that than your actual, you know, your creative writing degree.
2: uh, Definitely, yep. (laughs) I think that in in the years that I, since I've done a creative writing degree, I hear that they've changed and are a lot better, but unfortunately I didn't really get much out of mine at all Um, and that's disappointing. Uh, But, yeah, through just talking to other writers, um, making connections and uh, reading some craft books. Um, And also, as I said, the biggest thing for me is definitely being a member of Romance Writers Australia. That was my turning point about learning a bit more about what I need to put in a book. Yeah. And now I think it's more of a, a thought process necessarily than what I put on paper. But I definitely think I probably think more about the book before I start and, you know, uh, about what, where it needs to go, and what, what things must happen in the book.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, how long does it take you to write a book?
2: Um, if it's a, I've written some novellas and some longer ones. My yeah. big ones about hundred thousand words, and it'll take me probably three to four months, ideally. Um, to do like the first draft yeah. and obviously then there's edits and you know yeah. rewrites. Yeah. sometimes I wrote Outback Blaze in two and a half months which is my the, the quickest I've ever written a book because it was a bit of a mix-up with deadlines so um yeah that was the quickest I've ever written and I actually really like writing fast yeah. and I feel that I'm staying in the sort of the world of the book better um did, so did you yeah, have to
0: do if so if you write like that is there a lot of redrafting for you do you have to or do you edit as you go or how does that work
2: I definitely edit more as I go um I'm not I hate rewriting and I know it needs to be done sometimes and I do do it but I I definitely have a quite a clean first draft um and then now I just submit that first clean first draft or I'll read through it and you know if there's any major things that I know noticed that are wrong um but then I will submit it and then work with the editor to get it up to the next round kind of thing Right,
0: I guess that's the difference too, isn't it, between being over the line and being not quite True. over the line? Is that you can work with your editor on it like that, rather than having yeah. to work through it yourself until yeah. it's at
2: the point where it's ready to go. And I think you know when you're writing as well that, like, um, well, there's a deadline up, you know, coming up, so you've got to get it done. But you also know that there's going to be someone else who's going to help you. So yeah, as you said, that that is a difference. Yeah. Mm.
0: So are you an author with a notebook full of ideas? Like do you know what your next book's going to be and your next book and your next book and your next book?
2: I know about what the next book is going to be um, and that's, that's about where I'm at at the moment. And a few weeks ago I was stressing that I had no more ideas So, and then I went for a walk with the dog and, you know, something started to drop into place. So I don't have a notebook full of ideas. I wouldn't say that I'm a huge ideas um, author, I just write one book and hope that someone, when I'm writing that book, the next one will <laughs> kind of come to me. And so far, it has. So I hope it keeps happening.
0: Do you start with a character or a situation, or where do you like when you when you sort of say you know you got an idea for your next one? What came to you? Was it the characters? Was it a was it something that a, a plot point? What
2: where do you start? Um, I'll talk about the one that I'm actually writing now, where that came from, because that's easy to explain. Um, it's called. I think the title will actually change, but my working title for my current book is Patterson's Curse, Mm -hmm. which I don't know um, anyone who's in a rural area will probably know that that is weed, actually. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that, you know, farmers find quite um, – it can be quite damaging to crops and – not crops – you know what I mean? Yes. Anyway, I'm yeah. not a farmer, as I said. Yes, it's <laughs> but not good. I, you know, I drive along and I see this beautiful field full of purple flowers mm. to me. yeah. And I think, oh, isn't that pretty? And then I get told, no, that's not, you know, that's it's quite, bad. Mm. yeah. And a friend of mine just happened to say to me, you should write a book called Patterson's Curse. It's a great title. And I thought, it is a good title. Um, and I'd always kind of liked the idea of a family curse, but never actually for some reason thought about it writing it, and then I thought, oh, well, The Patterson Family, and so that came up with a title, an idea, and then I just sort of worked back and started, you know, thinking from there. Um, Sometimes it's things that have happened to me, like a book I mentioned a few minutes ago that I wrote very fast, Outback Blaze, Um, that's actually based on a true event that happened in a small community we were living on, very loosely, mm. but my husband was uh, the superma- supermarket manager in a town called up and one night it burnt to the ground and the whole town was out there um, in their pyjamas and slippers. None of us had bothered, you know, getting dressed because just wanted to go see what was going on, these sticky beaks that yes. you know, we all are. And I just remember standing there watching this building go up in smoke. It was a life, you know, It was sort of like the meeting place the hub of the community it wasn't just the supermarket it was also a hardware store and a few other things and it was just going up in smoke and there's jobs gone and you know thinking all these things but also just watching the people around me in their pajamas and slippers and thinking oh my gosh this is so going in a book one day yeah so you know everything but I, did, I didn't write it for another few years because i didn't have the rest of the story yeah but it was just there saying that you know that scene would be good
0: okay so, yeah so how do you fit the writing in with all the other things that you have going on
2: um, well I'm lucky in now that though we own our own business um, I'm actually not really a, I'm more of a silent partner now and my mum and my husband and uh, staff run our supermarket so I basically write full-time when the kids are at school I have all school-aged children now um, so that's you know that's in theory what happens I still write um a bit on the weekends as well, Um, just especially when I'm in in the current book, Um, because, you know, as a mum, other things crop up, like today I have a child home from school because he's not that well. Yesterday we had sports carnival, you know, so the days are not always completely your own, even though in theory I write full time. Yeah, yeah. So I just fit it in where I can and, um, yeah, it all seems to work out in the end. So do you work A lot of housework. Oh, there you go.
0: <laughs> do you work hard at your um, author platform, like this idea of an author platform? Where do you where do you stand on that and what works best for you as far as you're concerned?
2: It doesn't feel like hard work in a way because I've chosen things that I like doing. I have a very active Facebook page um, and I interact with readers on there and I update it regularly. But it's fun. I like, you know, posting a photo of my dog, crazy dog or something and then everyone, you know, telling their stories or, you know, just recommending a book that I've read recently and getting recommendations from other people. So I'm active on Facebook and I enjoy that. I'm on Twitter as well and um, that's quite fun too. Yeah. Um, but I'm not as active on there and uh, I talk mostly to writers, not necessarily other readers, okay. where on Facebook I feel like it's, you know, readers that I'm talking to. Yeah. And I've got a good reads profile but, you know, not very active there very inactive blog (laughs) but I do like it when I get round to doing it and I get some comments you know um and I've got I you know a pretty well my website is currently being um revised but yeah I keep that up to date quite uh, a lot as well but I don't feel it's it takes time yes but it also is quite fun for me but I've only chosen those sort of things to focus on and I'm Basically, I don't do some of the other things that I could do because I just choose to focus on the ones that I enjoy.
0: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess that's, I mean, it is, if you don't enjoy it, it doesn't feel hard, does it? Yeah, it doesn't feel I mean, feel, if you do enjoy it, think. it doesn't feel hard. Yeah, yes, I, I, I knew what you meant. <laughs> that went really well, I felt, yes. All right, Um. so romance is both an easy sell in some ways because readers love it. Like, it is it is one of the most always high-selling uh, genres of fiction in the world, yeah, um, but difficult because writing festivals and those kinds of places tend to overlook it. Like, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, it's a tricky one. i um, I think traditionally that's been the case, and it's hopefully slowly we're seeing a change. Um, because I think a lot of the people um, I've heard from uh, writers' festivals say, "Oh, well, we don't romance doesn't draw a crowd," and I think half the problem has been. That when there is a, a token romance um, session on at a at a festival, it's often not really a romance fest, uh, session because right. it's either by um, international authors who are you know not really romance, but you know have a, a, a love thread sort of in their thing, or they choose Australian authors who aren't really romance either. Um, and so you know they're they're supposedly talking about romance, but they're not really. And often they've watched a few, you know, podcasts or heard of panels and stuff, and you've got a romance panel where the the authors are up there saying, oh, well, I don't really write romance. And, yeah, in Australia we have so many romance authors that they could be taking advantage of. And I think it's it's a bit like the whole platform thing. If you get actual real romance authors doing the the romance sessions at festivals, you'll get the passion, you'll get the knowledge, and you'll get the readers then who love it too because they're coming to see, you know, authors that they know rather than... Yeah, Yeah. and I think, I mean, uh, the Australian Romance Readers Association is really good in um, promoting romance. And they've got – they had Sylvia Day out last year, I think it was, Um, and she's a a massive romance writer and had a huge crowd. So the crowds will come if you get the right people um, to speak about romance. And I think, you know, that's a lot of the problem. But I know that a few of the – Brisbane Writers' Festival had a a few romance panels, I think – just a couple of weeks ago, and I saw on Twitter, you know, some photos, and they actually had romance writers on there, not just, you know, writers that might have a tiny love thread throughout their book. And I think the important thing is a romance book is, you know, it's not just a book that has a little bit of a love story in it. It is a book that is very specifically romance as a happy ever after and, you know. um, The romance is the focus of the story. Yeah, so I think what writers' festivals have sort of maybe missed the point of what romance is and they're trying you know they're doing their best they think to put a romance think session on there but it's not actually a romance session and therefore it's not actually drawing all those readers that they could be drawing who love and buy romance yeah okay all right so well, let's
0: just um sum it up then let's get to our happy ending and let's <laughs> talk about tips for would-be romance authors what would be your three top tips for people who are writing romance and would be like to you know like to be published in that area
2: if you're writing romance, and I think I've said it a few times, probably throughout here, my biggest tip would be to join Romance Writers of Australia. Yep. Um, there's about 900 members now, some published, some not, um, and you know they just we run conferences, they have newsletters, contests, and just great community too, where you can talk to other writers um, and get you know tips and feedback. That was the biggest thing for me, I think, in finally turning the corner. Um, the other thing would be to yeah. To make sure, obviously you said we're writing romance here, but to decide what type of romance you want to write and where you want—if you want to be published, where you want to be published—and really, you know, go and research that genre and make sure that you're, you know, writing uh, for them, writing for that thing. And so then, yeah, read and write. I'm not very good at maths. There's, there's four there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Run of Australia, know your genre, and read—you know—really widely in that genre, but also in other John, I don't understand these writers that say they don't read. I just, mm. It just baffles me. Mm. So, And then write. you got to have um, – and I think the difference between being a hobby writer and being a professional writer is that you sometimes have to write or you often have to write when you're not in the mood to write or, yeah. um, you know, when you haven't got the idea there, you've just got to sit down um, and, find and, one. and do it. So, yeah, I think, you know, I get emails from people sometimes that say, Oh, i was wondering how you find the time to write um, and, you know, you'll do it if you want to do it because we're all busy. We all have houses that need to be cleaned, um, kids that need feeding or jobs that we need to go out and do. Um, but it's just like if you love knitting, you find time to knit, you know. Yep. So, yeah, they're my tips, I think fantastic
0: all right well thank you so much for your time today really appreciate it good luck with the writing of patterson's curse we look forward to seeing what that ends up being called and also good luck with your new novel outback ghost which is of course out now um and yeah we'll um we will see you around the social media traps at some point definitely thank you so much for having me
1: great interview isn't rachel awesome
0: Yes, she is. She's really awesome and she's doing so well in the US and I mm. think it's amazingly good to see Aussie authors doing so well. Very proud.
1: Yeah, good honour. Mm. Well, let's move on to our web pick for the week. Um, I have chosen, speechpad.com. So, speech as in, you know, the way you speak, speechpad.com. And I've actually used it. So, this is from first-hand experience. So, speechpad.com is basically, you know, this is going to be really helpful for all of the people who hate transcribing. Mm. So, you record your interview, you know, because you are talking to uh, an expert or a case study or someone like that for an article that you're writing. And sometimes your interview can go for an hour and sometimes if you're not a good transcriptionist that one hour can take you four hours to mm. transcribe uh if you're a quick if you're good and quick transcriptionist then it might only take you an hour and a half but it can take a very long to transcribe audio. So speechpad.com transcribes it for you. It costs you money though, so don't get excited. It's not some fantastic whiz-bang program where you can just upload your MP3 and computers oh, computers spit it out like that. Well, they like can a write novel. novels, yeah. <laughs> so why
0: can't they do that? I don't get it.
1: Apparently they haven't mastered it quite okay. yet. Right. So you do have to pay. It's a dollar, it's a US dollar per audio minute. It also does it for videos, but I haven't used it for videos. And um, you can – and the thing is, if you're – if it's – if you've got, uh, say, a half-hour interview, sure, that's $30. But if that would have taken you two hours or whatever to transcribe, and you, not only do you not have to spend those two hours, you don't have to have endure the pain of having to transcribe oh, the pain. it. So I did use it. approximately a 40-minute interview and i have to say it was very good very accurate now i suspect that a lot a lot of the transcriptionists are american now i the the interview it was an interview that i did with somebody was with an american person so maybe they were or you know they 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 you know, recognised the accent a lot more easily than perhaps they would if it was an English person or an Australian person. So that's my next test. I'm going to try giving them an interview with an Australian person.
0: So you can that, interview me, Val. Well, Let's yes. Send them our podcast and see how they go with that.
1: Yes, send them the podcast. Hmm. But, yeah, it was very, very good, very accurate. Uh, I was quite impressed, actually. So, speechpad.com. There you go. Yeah. Lovely
0: tip. particularly Obviously, For those of us who hate transcribing and yes. that would be me.
1: Obviously, it does need to be some level of quality, like you can't have some scratchy thing that you've recorded in a cafe or a bar or something and expect them to get it very right. It's got to be, you know, decent kind of audio. But Mm. yes, speechpad.com. Okay. So, we have a question from Karen this week, and it's an interesting question. Karen has said... I've been listening with interest to your thoughts about a writer's social media presence. I have a fairly common name, especially when doing a Google search, and have considered using a pseudonym. Should I try to build a social media platform around that pseudonym before even querying agents and publishers, or wait for them to suggest if a pseudonym is appropriate or not, assuming, of course, I have a scintillating manuscript that agents and publishers want? What's your advice? There we go.
0: What if, what's your advice, Valerie?
1: Well, I don't know how common uh, Karen's full name really is, but um, I would say that if you if you feel that it is, it is common, um, I think that it's still worthwhile going under your name, particularly if you haven't been published yet. And unless your name really is John Smith, <laughs> but even if it is... I would suggest that you establish your social media presence as John – say on Twitter, it's very likely John Smith's already taken. It's very likely on Facebook John Smith's taken. So try something like John Smith author or, you know, Karen Smith author, whatever your name is, or Karen Smith writer so that you establish your social media presence with a very clear intention that you're an author and you you have that level of differentiation. I think it's unless you have some reason to – other reason to have a pseudonym like, you know, the mafia is going to get you or something, Mm. then it's worthwhile to go under your real name if you indeed like your real name. I think so. Some authors subsequently have pseudonyms when they perhaps write in a different genre, and that is a perfectly acceptable way, to reason to have a pseudonym or a slight variation on your name so that people don't, conf- your readers don't get confused. But um, yeah, I, I think go under your real name, but on social media differentiate yourself with some other, you know, suffix or prefix. What do you think?
0: Well, I think that everybody that I ever know, including myself, who has set up a, a um, so when I first started blogging, I was life in a pink fibro. Mm. Now my blog was always that. I was always Altate on on Twitter. Just because somebody said to me, why why did you not take Alison Tate right from the start? But I I wasn't ever not really ever taking it that seriously. So, everybody called me Al, so I was Al Tate. And now, of course, I'm A.L. Tate, children's author. So, that works out beautifully. But um, everybody I know that's ever started a blog, you know, and, and registered their domain name as Life in a Pink Fibro or as such and such has come back to being themselves. Yeah, Websites have been set up as Alison Tate or they're set up as, um, I'm trying to think of someone else who's done this, but there are quite a few people who have come out. Kerry Sackville. Kerry Sackville, that's right, Life and Other Crises, have come out from behind their blog name to be themselves and they have always, um, and that that seems to be the way it goes. So my thinking is just go out as yourself from the start Mm. and save yourself a lot of trouble because my initial Facebook page when I set up a Facebook page was Life in a Pink Fibro and then, I realised that really I need to bring everything back to my own name because people search my name more than they search the fibro. Yes, now they do. Um, and I wanted people searching my name. So I just think be yourself right from the start, it saves you a lot of grief down the track.
1: And people understand that you're using a pseudonym if you are hiding from the mafia. But people, if you're using a pseudonym for some reason that simply because you want a better social media presence, mm. that's not quite... Uh, something that's generally accepted these days, Yeah. at at this stage anyway.
0: No, yeah.
1: But let's move on to, uh, we want to thank those of you who've left us some reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much. It really helps us with the rankings. So if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a review on iTunes, we'd love it. We'd love it forever. Uh, But we want to do a big shout out to a great blog uh, called Wondering Sheila. Tales from an Australian Living Away from Down Under. And this is from Cathy, Kathy Powell, and um, she has written a review on her blog about So You Want to Be a Writer. So thank you so much, Kathy. We really appreciate we it.
0: We do. Thank you, Kathy.
1: Made our day.
0: Did. Did yes. indeed make our day. All right. Well, I think that's us. For the week, Valerie. I think
1: it is.
0: What are you going to be doing this week?
1: Oh, well, well, both you and I will be speaking at the yes. Storiology Conference, which is the conference run by the Walkley Foundation. It is. And uh, it is, uh, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll probably be uh, at the front of the room holding our session, holding our we masterclass.
0: Will. We will be talking about how to turn your passion into productivity and profit.
1: Yes. It's going to be fun. Which I'm really
0: looking forward to. And of course, tomorrow night we'll be speaking to each other again at yes. the at the Writers Centre meetup because too much bow and owl is never. Oh, nice. no, Am I
1: right? That's right. All, right. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone, and have a great week. We'll talk to you next time.
0: Bye.